Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the DCVC podcast. I'm your host, Akash Bhatt, and this is a show where we bring you leading investors investing in the tech landscape in India. I'm particularly excited about this episode. We're going to be exploring a sector that hasn't been explored on this podcast so far. Mobility happens to be one of the fastest growing sectors in India, and we have a guest on the show who is going to delve a little more deeper on this subject with us. Allow me to welcome Kunal Katha. Kunal is the general partner at Advantage, an early-stage consumer-focused VC fund with a special emphasis on the mobility ecosystem. Kunal has spent a lot of his career in the mobility space, and there couldn't have been a better person to delve a little more deeper into the subject than him. So, without further ado, let's head into the episode and listen to what Kunal has to offer, and understand why this sector is one of the hottest and fastest-growing sectors in the country right now. On to the episode. So welcome to season two, Kunal. Really great to have you on the podcast here today. How are you and how has everything been for you in the last uh, eight months or so? Hey, Akash. Uh, pleasure to be here. And thank you again for uh, inviting me and giving this opportunity to have a nice, uh, you know, informal chat with you. Uh, 2020, I mean, as you can imagine, has been a year of learning. Um, you know, challenges uh, um, come and go as an as VCs, we invest in entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship, as you know, is anyways difficult, um, especially in, in a country like India, which is still evolving. But I think this has also uh, been a year where we've identified new opportunities uh, and more importantly, it's given us enough time for introspection to, to see what is it, um, how to improve ourselves, how to help our founders and portfolio companies improve their business models. So I think it's been a bit of a mixed bag, but ultimately what's important is now we continue to look forward and trying to see what have been our key learnings and trying to take those learnings to um, definitely have a, a, a more fruitful, engaging and successful year ahead. Now let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the learnings that you've had within the last year itself. Talk to us about some of the most interesting insights that you've had, both from, from a portfolio perspective, as well as what you've seen within the Indian ecosystem? Sure. So I think what's important, you know, we sort of uh, have, have broken up um, the timelines into pre-lockdown, post-lockdown. Um, because if we talk about pre-COVID, post-COVID, then COVID's a moving target. Um, it, we are aware of when it hit us, but we're still not sure when it will go away. Um, so I think one learning, of course, was that uh, we, we learned to survive um, and in many cases thrive uh, during the time of pandemic. I think mobility as a sector was probably um, similar to, say, travel, hospitality, uh, restaurants, airlines, hotels, etc., was also quite badly hit. But fortunately, it's a sector that, has bounced back incredibly fast and we've, we've experienced in most of our portfolio companies a v-shaped recovery um, proving uh, to us that mobility as uh, a need is secular it's not cyclical i think so that's one important thing that we realized um, i think for us actually the uh, whole covid um, 
you know, underlying COVID uh, challenges has given us an opportunity to identify uh, amazing investment opportunities at significantly lower valuations that we were looking at a year ago. So if you are a, um, a VC and you're in the process of deploying capital, um, this has actually been a, a blessing in disguise because it's allowed us to come in at lower valuation. So if you've got a seven to nine year investment horizon, I think this is actually a, a great in 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 a, in one way is a great opportunity for us. I think the challenges have been more if you were um, looking at exiting at this time, or if you're looking to raise capital. Um, and you know, as you know, both VCs and startups both need to raise capital. So I think that those aspects of the of our model have have experiences some some stress and challenges. But I think from a deployment point of view, actually, uh, COVID is going to help. Uh, VCs actually uh, give superior returns um, if compared to if COVID would not have happened. So I think that's one insights that we've learned. Uh, second, like I said, was that within mobility, uh, there is certain aspects which were badly hit by COVID, but now we've seen uh, you know rapid recovery. But I think within mobility, we've suddenly were able to identify some specific investment opportunities which have actually are experiencing tremendous amounts of tailwinds and have actually seen businesses accelerate and interest level go up. For example, vertical e-commerce investment opportunities, whether it's B2B or B2C in the auto industry, uh, we've actually seen an increased level of interest as well as customer uh, purchase patterns and, and increasing, uh, you know, improving metrics in that area. Uh, adoption of electric vehicles have actually uh, probably will accelerate because of COVID, uh, because a, a number of companies in the shared mobility space um, are now under tremendous amounts of pressure to improve unit economics, right? So if you're an Uber and Ola or, or uh, you know, Vogo and Bounce who are providing uh, shared mobility um, solutions, I think had it not been for COVID and, and uh, you know and and startups had endless uh, capital flowing to them, there would not have been a desire to improve unit economics and profitability. Uh, you know, fuel constitutes almost seventy to eighty percent of operating costs, whether you're you're in the business of moving people or in the business of delivering goods and services. Um, so therefore, if there is an intense focus on, on improving a profitability, you're going to look at operating costs. Uh, and one of the fastest way to improve uh, operating costs is to look at a cost element which constitute 80% of that, which is, which is you know, gas or fuel. Um, so I think EV adoption will definitely accelerate. And we're expecting the first phase of adoption to come from B2B use cases. So if you look at our, our portfolio companies, two, both the, uh, two of our portfolio companies in the EV space are providing B2B solutions, uh, which we think is, is probably going to become uh, mainstream in the next six to 12 months. So that's the, that's the other learning for us is that uh, there, you will see opportunities, whether you're sector agnostic or sector specific, it's important to you know, peel the onion and get down to understanding more and more specific opportunities out there um, because uh, irrespective of uh, uh, of what is happening now, things will improve. Uh, demand for certain businesses uh, are not cyclical. Uh, mobility is one such case. 
but within mobility there are actually uh, you know business opportunities which have uh, uh, which which will benefit uh, from the current uh, pandemic that's fantastic and you actually touched upon one of the things that i wanted to bring up in the later part of the podcast but sure. let's talk about the opportunities within the mobility sector we obviously know the push from the government through the niti uh, ayog reforms towards electric mobility and you touched upon it but outside of that talk to us about where your heads are at in terms of what what gives you the optimism about this sector in spite of you know the year 2020 being such a hard hit here for the mobility sector as such for instance electrification will definitely increase in select segments such as two wheel and three wheel vehicles and shared mobility could also increase because of the growth of various use cases such as last mile delivery uh, ride hailing and rentals where are the opportunities that you are looking at and what does it say about the industry for 2021 and beyond uh, so talking specifically about electric mobility right now that's so we've actually uh, so one of the again silver linings of of the lockdown and the subsequent sort of slowdown in the in the uh, um, you know ecosystem gave us an opportunity to actually go and sp- spend a lot of uh, time in drilling down um, and and you know taking a magnifying glass and saying okay what is what are the different components that constitutes the entire electric ev ecosystem or the value chain um, starting all the way from components to assembly to aftermarket service to leasing opportunities to battery as a service etc um, uh, etc cetera, et cetera. so when we split that entire ecosystem or supply chain into different verticals uh, different businesses different stakeholders in the whole ecosystem to make uh, to make the business work um, we started picking and choosing and prioritizing Uh, and saying okay there are many opportunities which typically will not work in a vc investment format right typically as you can appreciate you know vcs have a certain eg- entry and exit horizon that's one two is amounts of capital that they look to deploy three is they're looking at opportunities which have the potential to scale and become 100 200 million revenue opportunities in the next x number of years um and three uh, uh, and of course there are other uh, you know specific needs that uh, that are, are important checkpoints for an investment from a venture capital um, so there are some opportunities like for example uh, becoming an oem in our opinion is not a vc investment opportunity so we pretty much stay away from um, from those and i would say almost 20 25% of business plans that come to us are startups who want to become oems they want to become two wheeler manufacturers or three wheeler manufacturers and we have a close working relationships with say a company like ether uh, because they have received investments from one of our uh, lps uh, that we recognize the co- amount of capital not only the amount of capital that's required but you know those businesses are something that take more than 5 to 7 years uh, to 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 become um, of relevance uh, because manufacturing in india anyway is a tough tough um, uh, uh, what you call business business model but man, becoming an oem is even more complex 
So we typically avoid that, especially if it's a B2C opportunity. Now within assembling, uh, we are okay with looking at invest, investing in companies that are focusing on the B2B space in manufacturing um, you know, electric form factors. Um, and the reason for that is that if you're looking at B2B, uh, you're really not requiring significant amounts of capital for building a brand or distribution. So cost of sales and acquiring customers is, is low uh, because you're not creating a pull product. It's a push product. And push product is far more easier to execute. And we think the next five to seven years is predominantly we're going to see higher conversion or migration from ICE, which is your internal combustion engine, combustion EVs, in, in the B2B use cases uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is, of course, the average daily usage in B2B is, will be you know, 3 to 10x that of personal mobility. Um, so therefore, from a financial point of view, if you're in the business of delivering products, solutions, et cetera, where you're looking at cost and payback and break even, et cetera, EVs, like I had mentioned earlier, refuel is 70 to 80% of operating cost, will see a faster payback if you have high usage, uh, low cost. Whereas in personal mobility, it's more about the uh, you know, visual uh, aesthetics um, are, are higher priority than payback and return on capital. Uh, and we think that the price difference between a traditional vehicle uh, and a similar electric vehicle is just too high for individual personal mobility use case to actually see sufficient payback or break even, um, you know, given the low usage of the asset. And I think given, uh, you know, cost of lithium ion, of course, continues to fall. I believe in the last 10 years, it's fallen as much as 70%. So I think that uh, that that difference in pricing will continue to happen. Not to say that there will not be adoption of EVs and personal mobility, but I think that's going to be a slightly more time-consuming process. And that's another reason why we are prioritizing um, companies that are building specific form factors for B2B users rather than B2C. I think one of the reasons uh, it's important to highlight is one of the reasons why shared mobility companies, uh, especially in India, uh, till now have struggled is, uh, and this is again an insight that we have sort of uh, derived from, um, you know, working specific, uh, very closely in this space and speaking to important stakeholders, is that today if you're a shared mobility uh, player, um, uh, and you're using a two-wheeler form factor, you have been dependent on uh, manufacturers like a Hero or a Bajaj or a TVS that have actually designed and are manufacturing vehicles for personal mobility, right? Now, if you are uh, looking to sell a consumer a two-wheeler, whether it's a scooter or a bike, uh, you know, the criteria that you identify or the needs of a consumer are very different to that, to the needs of a B2B use case. Uh, so a personal uh, consumer is looking to buy from a trusted brand. Uh, like I said, the look and feel of a vehicle is very important. Uh, you know, comfort is important. Ride quality is important, etc. cetera. Um, fuel efficiency is also relatively important, but not as important because the usage is pretty low. And that vehicle is, uh, is since it's owned by an individual, is normally single owner, used you know 30 40 kilometers a day normally the vehicle is parked 
you know in the in the safety and security of somebody's house uh, or office etc now you take that same physical asset and bring it into a bike taxi or a bike sharing uh, or a, or a you know e-commerce delivery uh, uh, use case now suddenly you're looking at the vehicle doing 200 kilometers a day you're looking at maybe six to seven different uh, customers using that vehicle you're looking at if it's a dockless solution the vehicle is parked in this in, in outside being exposed to all the elements of of, of weather sun rain dust humidity etc um, and deliveries etc so you know you, can, you you know if you're in india or anywhere you'll see uh, people using personal vehicles for uh, you know food delivery or e-commerce delivery and that's uh, you have individuals who have these, uh, you know, backpacks or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, carrying 10, 20, 30 kilograms of stuff, uncomfortable, um, not very safe. So what you're starting to realize is that, okay, you've got the wrong form factor being used in a use case that was it was never designed for. I think that people have realized now that there is certain limitations to a marketplace model where you can aggregate existing supply you know, the model that Uber has perfected over time. Uh, but now you're coming to specific use cases where people are looking for, uh, you know, vehicles that have been designed specifically for that and not for personal mobility being used in a B2B application. So I think that is one insight that we've understood. And I think that's why we feel that if you're building um, uh, or designing vehicles, keeping in mind the needs of a shared mobility service provider or, the individual uh, biker who's in that, uh, who's you know works or full time in that specific business, you're going to have to design vehicles that um, have the ability to to meet safety, security, productivity norms of that particular use case. Whether it's uh, bike taxi companies, um, uh, and therefore you have certain different uh, requirements, but more importantly, um, in companies that are into the business of delivering goods and services. So I think that's another aspect that we've recognized from that. So we've created a waterfall where we've not only identified specific business opportunities across the entire EV ecosystem, uh, and therefore we're focusing on that, but also in the form factor, we think adoption of EVs uh, for two-wheelers, B2B applications will be probably the ones that is going to see the maximum amount of, of uh, traction in the next couple of years. And after that, we think um, once price points are coming down, uh, you know, uh, consumer specific vehicles are being designed, um, we will see faster adoption on the personal mobility front, uh, as well as commercial use cases, whether it's uh, goods, and, again, goods and services or public transportation, uh, although we know that there are a number of EV four-wheelers being introduced in India, including Tesla has now, I believe, announced their, um, uh, what you call, objective or their... their Long-awaited entry. entry into in India. India. Um, we think that uh, these will remain niche products. Um, you know, India does about 3.5, 3.6 million new car sales every year. I think it's going to be some time and at least not uh, from our current funds investment, uh, uh, what you call horizon of the next two to three years, we're going to see any serious adoption of four-wheelers uh, in the EV space. So that's why we've prioritized uh, the investment areas. 
and and if you're happy to get into more uh, details into that but i think that's uh, th these are insights and learnings we probably didn't have a year ago i mean this is all have come about, come about only because uh, i think what the lockdown did was it creates it created a high level of stress um, and across all the all the shared mobility companies and we worked closely with them and i personally know the founders of these different categories whether we've invested in them or not and this you know that's another discussion altogether is why is it that we never invested in any company that was that was executing an asset heavy model um, fortunately for us we passed on all those business opportunities but that made us realize that some of the challenges and issues with uh, that companies are facing right now and and hence which are the ones that will probably struggle to survive um, or which are the ones which will recover very fast and i think those are things that today i feel have made us has made our investment thesis far more sharper um, and also we've been able to identify and prioritize the opportunities where we think we will be deploying a majority of our capital in the next 6 to 12 months these are great insights and i want to unpack all of them uh, possibly over the course of this episode let me start with this you spoke about the adoption in the consumer sector and in my opinion correct me if i'm wrong one of the major reasons why there's a roadblock is the perceived safety with evs as well on the consumer side and the second thing is that consumer and there's there's limited availability of even the charging infrastructure within the ev space on the consumer side within india right now yes that's changing but what will really help in that is also government regulations and the reduction in the battery battery pack pricings and the pricing models there need to come down and for that to happen you'll need a lot of r&d to be deployed from both a vc perspective into startups that are into that space and also in terms of the deployment once these battery packs are out there all of this is interlinked in bringing down the prices and and ensuring that there's mass ad adoption when it comes to the uh, ev adoption within the consumer sector have you been seeing anything both from an infrastructure play or from a regulation standpoint that gives you indication that the next couple of years yeah we've been talking about it like evs are going to be the future yes we all get it but any indications across these two topics that give you more optimism that the coming year or two will be the you could say the launch pad years for the future of evs in india on the consumer side sure so we have a uh, so couple of interesting points of view like question this um number one is i you're right uh, you know ev adoption and charging infrastructure is a chicken and egg story right till people don't get high level of comfort that there is a plethora of charging uh, chargers or charging networks in a country um, they'll hesitate to uh, migrate from an ic from an ice traditional petrol diesel cng vehicle to an electric vehicle so that is definitely means that um, till we don't see higher roll out of charging infrastructure adoption of consumer especially four wheelers will take time um, which is another reason why we have re we, we don't have put that we, we don't put that as high priority for us from from our funds point of view 
I think a couple of things, like I mentioned, is important. One is we recognize the fact that that, that we are far more bullish on uh, battery as a service, uh, as a as a use for faster adoption EVs than to wait for pricing to come down. See, there are certain things which are within the control of a startup or an ecosystem, and there are some things which are beyond your control. We all uh, know that the price of the, of lithium-ion batteries, et cetera, is going to come down with volumes going up in manufacturing. But we are also cognizant of the fact that you know China has a close monopoly to the raw materials needed for that. So will China continue to uh, you know allow pricings to drop? It definitely it works in their favors to do that if they are the largest manufacturers of lithium-ion cells in the in the world and they want to continue an export-led growth. Uh, but you know, one never knows if you're close to a monopoly. You know, one day somebody might come and change their policies and things like that. So I don't think it's it's it would be wise for us to hold our breath and to say, okay, let's wait for pricing to fall. I think one thing that and we worked very closely with Niti Aayog and we recommended that was uh, the government has recently allowed um, uh, OEMs to now separate the vehicles from the battery and allow them to be sold separately. Okay, so I think that's one very very important uh, uh, policy uh, 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 that will definitely help in the adoption of EVs, and I'll explain to you why. Uh, one of the reasons, of course, is that if you look at uh, an upfront cost um, uh, or on-road price of a traditional ICE vehicle from a Maruti or a Hyundai, because these are two very popular brands um, and have highly depreciated manufacturing plants. Um, and an EV and an EV of a similar format or or uh, what you call uh, feature, it's uh, the price difference almost fifty to hundred percent more. So there is sticker shock. You know, a ten thousand uh, dollar ICE car or similar EV is about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. So that's a lot of difference. And the reason for that is because fifty percent of the underlying cost of that vehicle is the battery. So the minute you separate the two, now you have apples to apples comparison, which means you can actually buy an EV vehicle for the same price of a petrol vehicle. Um, if you're not asked to pay for the battery upfront and sign up, um, and you may have two or three service providers who say, okay, we will buy the battery on your behalf and we lease it back to you, either on a fixed monthly or a, or a usage-based model. So I am buying the asset or the vehicle in my name, but a third party finance company or a leasing company is buying the battery and leasing it back to me. The advantage of that is that now in my mind, I'm playing a similar EMI or equated monthly installment for the vehicle. And for the battery, I'm probably paying 50% every month of what I was paying for the petrol or diesel that I was filling in my car, right? That structure where you have disintermediated the vehicle and the battery is actually uh, doesn't require consumer behavior to change from a traditional method of, of car ownership, right? So he's got an EMI going to the bank, which is the vehicle, and he spends $150 a month on petrol, and now he's spending $75, or $85, $100 a month on, on the use of the battery. Changing consumer behavior is much more difficult than changing technology, financial models, or, or business models, right? Those three are within our control. Consumer behavior takes time 
to change, especially if you're in a new category. Um, same logic. Today, if I were to buy a petrol BMW, right? When I go to buy a petrol uh, a petrol vehicle, the OEM doesn't ask me to pay for uh, three years of petrol upfront, right? So here's they don't come and say, okay, here, give me ten thousand um, dollars for the car, and now give me ten thousand dollars for the next three years of fuel that you're going to use, um, you know, to for the car. So why is it that when we look at battery uh, EVs? We're asking him to pay for the use of that battery for the next three years upfront, which is why this difference between an ICE and a petrol car. Um, so if you're able to separate the two and sell the car, but lease the battery, I feel adoption will be much faster. So I think that's the way we're going to go. So that's one. Second is our thesis is that since India always comes to the party late, whether it's you know, mobile telephony or high-speed internet, um, et cetera, we have the ability to leapfrog um, and probably bypass uh, a phase of adoption which requires high capital investments. Our thesis is that India has not made significant investment in the charging infrastructure, um, which requires billions of dollars. And maybe we may not have to, uh, we are expecting two things to happen in the next, say, four to five years. Battery costs will continue to fall, but more importantly, uh, range um, and battery technology will continue to improve. And when we say improvement in battery technology, it's across two important parameters. One is range and one is speed of charging. Um, so if you look at where we were, say, 10 years ago and where we are today, we've definitely seen, uh, you know, vehicle range go up from say 100, 150 miles to already close to 250 to 300 miles. And if you look at say the Tesla cyber uh, truck, et cetera, they are claiming five to 600 mile range. Let's assume that it will take time for us to get there. But if we are going to see, um, you know, battery technology evolve in such a way that we're going to see uh, battery range going to a 200, 300, 400 miles in the next you know, three, four years. And if battery charging, which is the, say the rapid charger, et cetera, is going to reduce the time it takes to charge from three to four hours to say 15 to 20 minutes. Again, both of these are very important elements of what an individual has got used to in his current petrol or gasoline powered vehicles, right? An average um, petrol car, if you tank up, we'll give you about 400, 500 miles on a single fill of, of gas. And if you look at the time it takes to get a car uh, tanked up in a gas station, it's about five to 10 minutes. So if you're able to, uh, to uh, mimic both of those, I think the need for having these charging infrastructure networks five years from now is gonna reduce considerably. Um, the other thing, so if you combine both of these elements, we're pretty uh, sure that our priority from a fund's point of view is we are looking at companies who are providing leasing solutions for the batteries themselves. So battery as a service, battery as a, you know, where people, we're creating, we startups creating financial uh, products where they actually make the investment of the battery uh, and then monetize that on a, on a usage-based model. 
so for us that's a priority rather than charging companies that are setting up charging networks in the country second is uh, we think battery swapping will probably get faster adoption than battery charging um again battery swapping also means that the the battery is never owned by the vehicle owner it's owned by a service provider now if you are in the business of battery as a service whether you are charging the vehicle um and it's a fixed battery but the customer is charging the vehicle it's still not owned by him we think there are exciting investment options in that space or you're providing battery uh, as a service in the form of battery swapping networks wherein with you know people come in with their vehicles and within the same time it takes to fill up you know 10 12 gallons of gas you're able to swap the battery out uh, and therefore the guy can be in and out in under 5 minutes we think that will be the second way that that consumers will choose to consume or 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 purchase their power uh, that comes from battery so for us those two are models are more opportunities that and we think going to uh, the adoption in b2b use cases is, is like i said is going to happen faster but even when it comes to consumers consumers are also probably going to see um, this as a viable next uh, a viable vehicle uh, that they would like to purchase if they're able to either get their batteries leased or they come in and say okay i'm going to go for swapping swapping is absolutely seamless for smaller form factors which are two and three wheelers but um, with the batteries wouldn't that actually um sure sure in the near term affect the competitive advantage that an oem has like for example it undermines the primary reason why people switch to an ev right and a tesla as uh, as a, as an example here because of the super network that it holds in the us and you know the western part of the country as well you're opening up a larger market to customers for the company because of that and if your that whole seamless experience that you spoke about will no longer be a differentiator if you kind of commoditize this so how do you see that panning out you know it's 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 you know th- there are obviously going to be negative uh, comments from people there are obviously going to be uh, a positive side to it as well so how do you balance it out why would an oem in spite of seeing an adoption also lose its competitive advantage while it does this is this more I of a catch 22 situation no so i think it's not a question of either or so i think tesla so first of all uh, tesla is a niche product it's a premium product right if you look at tesla's volumes today is you know tesla might be the largest selling premium sedan in a specific category um in a specific category but if you look at overall sales volumes um you know it still doesn't have a significant market share western economies higher income levels you know higher disposable incomes um people are less price sensitive to uh you know and are happy to buy a $80,000 tesla instead of a $30,000 luxury sedan from a toyota or a whatever right if you look at um, and i know that you want to compare it to a bmw and all but it's still tesla will be priced 20 30% premium to that i think india is a far more price sensitive market indians always i mean there's a famous one of the most famous campaigns uh, in india is you know somebody talks about a rocket that's that india has built a rocket that's going to go to the moon or to mars etc etc and the scientist at this you know nasa is kind of a 
Institute is very proudly talking about the features and et cetera. And then there's customer, one of the person who's, who's visiting that facility says that all that is fine, but tell me deti kitna hai, which is basically all that is great. Just tell me what mileage does it give? So that's the Indian psyche. Um, so, you know, to the point that, you know, it's, it's ironic, uh, think about it, that Indians, um, you know, almost 95%, I would say, or 98% of all luxury, uh, super luxury vehicles, the cars in India, all the BMWs, all the Mercedes, all the Audis and Jaguars, they're all diesel, right? So people will go and buy a $150,000, $200,000 uh, car, but then they'll say, no, don't give me petrol, give me diesel. And they're like, why? Oh, because diesel is 15 rupees a liter cheaper at the petrol pump. Right. So you can imagine the Indian mindset is that, OK, I don't mind spending, um, you know, so much money on buying a luxury car, but I want to save 10 bucks uh, a liter of fuel at the gas station. And so hence, give me a diesel uh, seven series BMW. Um, that's not going to go away. Right. So I think from an OEM's perspective as well, I, I think, uh, you know, the market share of luxury and premium cars is India. Like I said, we sell about three and a half million vehicles a year. Uh, the combined sales volumes of the top five luxury brands, which is I'm talking Audi, Mercedes, BMW, Lexus, Jaguar, Range Rover, is about 35,000 vehicles a year. You know, so you can imagine, and that number has has not grown up, has not is not growing uh, up by much. So it's a very small market, small that. So if you come with a, a Tesla also comes will be a very niche product. Uh, but if you're talking about large scale adoption, you're gonna have to ensure that the business model, the pricing model, et cetera, is closer to what Indians will understand and appreciate. And for them, it's all about how do I reduce the entry price, make an EV and a non-EV vehicle at a similar price point. And for that to happen, you have to remove um, and don't ask for capital, uh, don't sell the battery upfront, and therefore the vehicle cost would be similar, and then pay for the battery on a usage-based model. Now, again, like I said, the in some cases, the battery may be fitted and fixed with the vehicle. It doesn't have to be swapping. In cars, we're assuming that you know swapping batteries is challenging because of the size um, and the weight of the battery. So even though the, the battery comes fitted with an OEM battery, it's the ownership that's getting split, not necessarily the physical product itself. Uh, battery swapping is far more attractive for commercial use cases of EVs. And the reason for that is that if your uh, requirement of the EV is 200 kilometers or 150 miles a day, um, for, you be, for you to be able to give a battery that can do that kind of distance, the cost and the capacity of the battery is going to be extremely high. And the way you want to keep the price down is that you give a lower capacity battery. But that lower capacity battery is only meeting 30, 40% of a daily need, which means you either have to um, sit down and charge the battery twice a day, thrice a day, which today's technology takes three to four hours of charging, um, or you do a battery swapping, which basically gives an infinite capacity to that vehicle owner a day to do food delivery, to do grocery deliveries, to do e-commerce package deliveries, et cetera. 
So that's where we think that the, that uh, you know battery swapping is more relevant there. So I, again, I, I again OEMs themselves will realize the importance of that, and I think they will also come to the conclusion that it's important for us to bring the entry price down um, and be creative in the way we sell and market our products. So taking the example of Tesla here entering the Indian market, how much do you think will Indian government have to play a role in bringing the price down? Because if it's looking for adoption, Tesla will have very will have to work very closely with the regulators. And to make this an industry-wide phenomena or industry-wide movement, wherein every OEM or every, every manufacturer that's coming out with an electric vehicle is thinking on this on these lines, but it's thinking about a battery pack separately or a swappable battery pack versus then selling a vehicle itself. Hmm. Do, do you see signs of that? And how much do you think can the VC ecosystem play a role in influencing that change from a regulator standpoint? So I think, I don't, to be honest with you, I'm not sure the government um, will be that concerned about Tesla's go-to-market and the kind of volumes Tesla will generate. But uh, Tesla was an example. Tesla, Let's just talk about. Ha, so I think Tesla. So as an example, I would ha. say that some OEMs will be uh, very specific about their product offering. I think Tesla is one. Tesla is a wall garden approach, right? They like to be. Uh, Elon is very specific about having end-to-end ownership of the entire value chain. Um, so he wants to have exclusive chargers, exclusive batteries. I mean, he wants to set up his own battery manufacturing plants, et cetera. That's an Apple approach, right? That's what Apple did and, and created it. And it was proven to be a successful model. I think in India, Aether is attempt, attempted to do that. Let me put it this way. Um, and when Aether started, they had the more Tesla approach and saying, okay, I don't want you know third-party component guys. I don't want to outsource manufacturing. I don't want to out, uh, have third-party distributors and franchises. But if you look at that, uh, Ether was forced to evolve and say, okay, the Tesla model is not going to work in India. So today, they are dependent on third-party suppliers for a majority of their components. They have now decided to sign up you know, independent uh, franchisees now for their distribution, aftermarket sales, and support. And they realize that it's not possible for them to be able to own and manage the entire value chain here. Uh, and the reason for that is that you can get away with that kind of strategy if you have a super premium product you're selling at high margin. And therefore, that incremental margin gives you sufficient cash flow to be able to make that investment. Or you have the ability to raise infinite amount of capital from investors who believe in your vision, etc. India is always capital starved, right? Indian startups have to execute businesses at a fraction of the capital that, say, a U.S. company would have. Um, and in that approach, you're going to have to force to be able to focus on your core uh, uh, competency, which in, in, in Ether's aspect is design, um, and say, okay, manufacturing, assembly, I can retain, but components I will have to procure from third party. So they've started now that element where it's, so they don't have a walled approach. It's not the entire value chain owned by them. They have dependent on third parties and distribution also they're saying, I'm a manufacturing design company for me to be able to get into all India distribution and all is just not possible. So let me tie up with, uh, so they're signing up with, you know, uh, uh, with uh, franchisees who are distributing, you know, uh, 
were ex Harley Davidson dealers now are becoming uh, ether dealers, etc. So I think that combination is going to go. I think you cannot have a US. I think that's the mis. I would say a mistake that many people do is assume that models or businesses that have worked in the US will work in India. I think you have to adopt. There are some things that will work, some things that will not work. So I think understanding that domain and understanding how others have gone about it is very, very important. Um, you can try. In some cases, you know, like I said, uh, things will change, things will evolve. But back to my point where consumer behavior is something that takes very long to adopt, uh, to evolve and change, especially if you're in a new category. And regulation in India is also some things which are very, very unpredictable. Um, so it's important to be flexible in the way that you're going to approach things. Opportunities are big. Uh, India is the fourth largest, you know, uh, four-wheeler market in the world, but it's the largest two-wheeler market in the world. It's the largest bicycle market in the world. So I think those who, who those who want to set up shop here and want to introduce EVs for two-wheelers, it's the largest three-wheeler market in the world as well. It's the world's largest e-rickshaw market in the world. We have about 3 million installed e-rickshaws, which in fact, e-rickshaws constitute almost 82% of 85% of the EV uh, installed base in India. Only 15% of EVs are two-wheelers and four-wheelers. You know, 85% are actually these three-wheeler e-rickshaws, which, which is a very India product, India-centric product. Um, which is neither a three-wheeler, you know, tuk-tuk, nor is it a two-wheeler, nor is it a four-wheeler. It's just a different category altogether, which is unique to India. Um, so I think that's, that proves that there are not only a business model that's very unique to India, but actually you'll see form factors come up and become success, successful in India, which you will not see anywhere in the world. So it's always important to have eyes and ears on the ground it's very very critical to be able to understand the, the indian customer uh, because it uh, you know indian customer so india in our mind we look at india as very complex anyways for us we think of india more as an eu which constitutes like 25 different countries in one rather than a us which is more homogenous right and customer behavior is very similar i would say a consumer in San Francisco and New York probably has the same likes and dislikes, probably has similar purchasing patterns, right? Similar culture, similar education. And I know there are segments in every country, but the same demographic profile of an individual in say Los Angeles and Chicago would be similar. In India, that's not the case. You know, uh, as you know, uh, in India, every hundred miles you drive, Everything changes, the language changes, the culture yeah. changes, the food changes. So for you to be able to understand the complexity of rural, urban, tier one, tier two, tier three is very important. Indians um, are very inflexible in certain ways. They're very flexible in certain ways. Right. We love we love cheap things. We love, you know, uh, uh, there's a joke that says that the Gujarati is a person who buys products which has the lowest gross margins which doesn't mean they'll buy cheap products. They'll buy very expensive products, but uh, the manufacturer is making the least amount of money, which means they, they value buying stuff, which is close to what the price of manufacturing it is. Mm -hmm. 
they don't like to buy products which have a 70 80% gross margin, margin right yeah. Yeah. So they like value products. It yeah. doesn't mean cheap. So they'll buy a vehicle. They'll buy a $20,000 vehicle. They'll buy, you know, whatever it is. But as long as they know they're getting value, which means the least amount of contribution or gross margins to the manufacturer or whatever, those are the products that they'll buy. That also means that the manufacturer then has to provide exceptional service in order to ensure that either there are additional revenue streams where they can make money off of or they have to ensure that the exceptional service then ensures that their customers coming back to them so even from the other flip side when you think about or it or scale or scale so i tell you right ha so in india it's i think the key to success in india is to 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 develop to deliver decent quality doesn't have to be premium reliability is important low cost of ownership is very very important um and low margin means low price of course uh, so indians want high quality relatively high quality at a low price but but the trade off is that if you can if you can figure out how to do that then you're like a maruti then you have the ability to sell such high volumes of products which means that you will continuously with that kind of volumes you will continuously to be able to sh- sh- uh, chip away at the cost and improve your margins that but profitability will come from scale not necessarily from high gross margins high gross margin products in india will either remain very niche very small so premium products etc um or they will they will get uh, you know uh, they will create number of competitors will come in with similar products lower price who have the ability to then scale that business so distribution becomes key in that case Uh, that's a great point that you make and even going back to the earlier discussions around consumers and how india is a very different market you know some of the most exciting developments that we have seen like we discussed is related to the small format mobility sector you know the two wheeler mm-hmm. three wheeler you mentioned how these india is a leader in these two sectors and even during the pandemic we saw that most of the demand came from the migrant population right people who came from rural india who predominantly work in larger cities or at least tier 2 and tier 3 markets and it is that even when we take a look at pandemic in retrospect the lockdown was something that prompted many of these migrants to move back to their hometowns which then drove the demand for affordability within the mobility sector and there are certain nuances within the industry that is coming about that is ensuring that the mobility sector itself will accelerate especially from an affordability standpoint and risk of infle- uh, infection uh in in the middle months of the year kind of drove that because the market also had to go down now there's a rise in demand demand even for the last mile delivery and that's one benefit that we are seeing across the sectors even in india let's talk about that for a little bit and from your personal portfolio or from the insights that you have gained by looking at these companies within the last mile sector where are the opportunities and what are some of the pitfalls that investors fall into so uh, we so uh, logistics and distribution is one of the four pillars of our fund right so apart from electric mobility or evs ecosystem we look at shared mobility and again shared mobility we are looking predominantly on on evs electric shared mobility 
uh, we look at e-commerce. I think e-commerce is definitely something that's going to be huge. So, you know, in India, we only have horizontal success stories, your Amazon, your Flipkart, your Snapdeals. Um, we have vertical success stories in categories like fashion, uh, like clothes, like eyewear. We don't have success stories in the auto industry or uh, in vertical e-commerce. So we're looking at, you know, product categories like tires, batteries, accessories, spare parts, uh, vehicle financing, vehicle leasing, et cetera. And the last is logistics. So for us, we scanned the entire logistics, um, again, uh, yes, uh, what you call um, ecosystem. And the two areas that is exciting us the most is last mile and middle mile. Now we think everything else seems to be overcapitalized and we generally avoid that. Um, but could you I, define to our listeners what middle mile is? So I think last mile is easy, easier to understand. That is connectivity between, say, um, a retail outlet or a restaurant to a consu- end consumer. So that's sort of last mile from a goods and services point of view. So it could be deliveries in a hyper-local market. So this is not e-commerce. This is more a hyper-local. Um, uh, and of course, then there is last mile connectivity from a consumer point of view, which is you know helping a person go from his house to a bus stop, et cetera. Middle mile for us is connectivity in more a B2B sense. Um, which is connecting warehouses um, and distributor with retail outlets. So for us, that's middle mile and vice versa. So that is a logistical product or logistical issue or challenge that we think is still not um, very efficient because the majority of the investment um, that we've seen has either come uh, in long-term logistics. So, you know, intercity, or have come more on the consumer last mile, first mile kind of categories. Um, middle mile is an area that we've seen, uh, we think that there is some investment, interesting investment opportunities there. Again, middle mile is manu- a factory to the warehouse and warehouse to the retailer. It's not consumer, it's more a B2B. Um, so we're looking at, at opportunities there. Um, so last mile, coming back to the last mile question that you, you talked about, um, you know, even personally, I would have said that pre-lockdown, again, we, we define our, our world as pre-lockdown and post-lockdown. Um, I used to probably, in, in my household, we used to get maybe two to three deliveries a week. Um, and I would say probably one or two would be Amazon and the balance would be either groceries or fresh meat or chicken or whatever. Um, I would say that post lockdown, that number is probably almost two deliveries a day now. So there's been almost a four, at least in our, my opinion, there's been a three to four X increase in the number of items that we are having delivered to our home. And if I multiply that across, you know, 50 million households or 100 million, we don't know that number. Um, that means the need for having this delivery is going to go up for sure. I think. In phase one of e-commerce, we saw marketplace, horizontal players establish themselves. Um, so your Amazon, your Flipkarts and Snapdeals, and that's a totally different distribution and delivery model. I think in the next phase and post lockdown, we've seen the resurgence of the hyper-local delivery model um, because customers' expectations for deliveries are, are getting uh, shorter and shorter, right? And it's not possible, um, but the challenge would always earlier would be that the volumes were not in 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 that business would not justify or make a, a hyper local delivery business profitable. 
But now that the volumes have grown 3x, 4x, 5x, we are now seeing hyper-local business models starting to make sense. Um, so now whether it's, you know, uh, chemists or, uh, or pharmacy deliveries, it's typically you've got now a higher probability of getting full, getting your needs fulfilled from a local chemist or a pharmacy, which is a couple of miles, uh, one or two miles from where you live. Groceries is the same. Um, you know, we've seen rapid adoption of cloud kitchens, right? Uh, the good thing about cloud kitchen as opposed to a traditional restaurant delivery model is because the capital investment or capex in a cloud kitchen is probably 10 to 15 percent you have the ability to open five times a more number of outlets than you would if you had a traditional kitchen which means that the distance between the kitchen and the customer is becoming shorter and shorter and therefore the need for hyper local last mile fulfillment is becoming more and more so the, the, the reason that's exciting us is now that the volumes are going up sufficiently to, for delivery companies to look beyond a traditional aggregator marketplace model where you're dependent on an existing um, you know, bike owner or an existing vehicle owner to come on board. You're actually now looking at companies willing to uh, bring on their own or make investments in their own vehicles. Um, average one of the challenges in India always has been low ARPU, average you know, price uh, per unit. In the US, I would say for food deliveries, it's about $12, let's say 10 to $12 is what the average unit is. In India, it's $3 or less, right? But the cost of delivery is high, right? You know, because petrol costs the same, vehicle costs the same, you know, the, you know, the car in the US is as expensive as the car in India. A gallon of gas in India in the US is probably cheaper than a gallon of gas in India. So, therefore, how do you bring the delivery costs down if the two biggest co uh, costs of delivery, the vehicle and the gas, is more in India than there? Um, so, it's definitely two wheeler driven. In India, no delivery happens in a four wheeler, right? No, none whatsoever, especially hyper local. Yeah. Labor is cheap, I agree with you, but with a $2, $3 average order value AOV, how do you, you know, make sure uh, how efficiently can you, how much can you bring down delivery costs? Till now, the aggregator or delivery companies is absorbing that cost. Customers were still not ready to pay for it. Restaurants were also not ready to part with that. All that has changed now. Customers have started chipping in and paying for delivery costs. Restaurants or dark kitchens have started also giving incremental, um, you know, for delivery cost. And ultimately what uh, aggregators will realize at volume, they're gonna have to look for form factors again, which has much lower operating cost where again, EVs are coming in and everybody from an Amazon to a Zomato to a Swiggy, you know, these are all, you know, leaders in, in delivery, whether it's hyper-local or e-commerce fulfillment um, are aggressively looking to onboard electric vehicles now either they'll buy it themselves or they'll ask their vendors to buy it, et cetera. Those models are evolving, but I wouldn't be surprised that a majority of growth in a last mile delivery would be uh, uh, with, with the EV form factors going forward. forward. It's, it's also one of the most important contributing factors here also is the fact that the cost to rent and maintain e-vehicles uh, like your scooters is exponentially lower in comparison to their ICE counterparts, right? To, for, to take an example, when you rent an ICE vehicle, there's an additional 
line of expense that are to be met by the consumer like the petrol and diesel cost which get added into the form factor that the things that we spoke of which gets added into the um the pricing which is almost nil in case of e vehicles and therefore even from a consumer perspective the prices are going down and therefore the in there's an increase in demand when you're buying stuff through these uh, hyper local services so all of these micro factors add up to the macro sort of uh, larger play which is evolving and helping the industry grow do you agree with that absolutely i think that evolution will continue to happen um but i i think the you know the low cost operating cost of evs is is um, so delivery cost was always accruing was a cost item in the balance sheets or the books of the of the aggregator or the delivery platform a zomato swiggy danzo kind of guy consumers in india till now was not paying for uh, delivery cost and that's changing like i said so ad- faster adoption in evs will make it more profitable for uh, delivery companies to start providing delivery services in a more aggressive way and will help them expand so again remember hyper local as 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 uh, uh, you know you'd be able to, to appreciate the fact is that unlike a, a digital business like a social media platform that the minute you switch on um, you know if you're a tiktok or a facebook if you launch that service you're present across the entire country right so anybody from anywhere can sign up and become a customer yep. if you're in hyper local delivery you're going to build that business you know block by block street by street forget city state and country it's a far more slower um, and more deliberate for, and you get that strategy wrong you start burning a lot of cash and then you got to contract so expansion and contraction is a very well thought out data driven decision making process so if you are working on negative margins right and you are absorbing all your delivery costs until unless you have you know unlimited investor money coming to you your expansion will always be mutated uh, uh, you know will always be um, very measured and limited um if you are able to figure out how to make it either neutral or profitable your confidence and your ability to expand aggressively becomes much stronger and again if you are expanding more aggressively and you are adding more zip codes and more cities you are helping in the entire hyper local delivery e-commerce adoption and change in consumer behavior so i mean i could be in a part i'm lucky i live in delhi so i have the option of 10 hyper local delivery companies because this is an area where there is density of population and income level and disposable income and therefore the chances of you know me finding options uh, where i can get a pizza delivered and my grocery deal is high but i move to a tier 2 tier 3 town maybe that is not available to me and therefore even though there is a desire for me to get stuff delivered maybe nobody is delivering food at my pin code at this point um so i think it's a, it's both have to move in tandem in, in, think, in situations like that don't you think what innovation like the innovation that amazon's brought about with its flex program really adds a lot of value to the pain point that you just discussed like when we take a look at what amazon has done in terms of crowdsourcing its delivery solution and building a robust both online and offline infrastructure to enable people to earn sort of a living uh, or even you know additional income 
by delivering packages on their schedule is is the kind of innovation that we need in india especially when we talk about these pain points that you just with that you just touched upon so aggregator models are similar on similar platforms so for example a rapido will bring on board um, you know bikers people who have vehicles and are willing to do deliveries for them and stuff like that so aggregate models are all uh, but i think uh, again um, i think amazon probably has the luxury of access to capital and uh, working in more or less a monopolistic environment and um, is is probably delivering products which have sufficient margins for them to be able to underwrite the cost of delivery in that sort of a, a market where they're aggregating and bringing on board part time riders or uh, you know uh, are outsourcing it to local entrepreneurs who want to do the delivery from for them Uh, so therefore they have those elements that work in that favor for them to do that in india also i think they're evolving and getting there in india four challenges four differences between india and the U, uh, the us in india number one is of course back to my point average order value in india is much smaller and therefore the margins that you have to play with to be cover uh, the cost of delivery is much less so you have to be able to do the same with a, with with far less uh, cost um so you that's the first constraint that you have to work into that volumes are also lower because you know the the uh, the penetration of e-commerce home delivery etc etc as uh, you know if as a percentage of total population forget population let's talk about the total percentage of people who are online who have a smartphone who have access to high speed internet have a payment gateway have uh, a credit or debit card have the ability to make that decision um that's still pretty low so volumes also are low but growing um so things like this will evolve will uh, will uh, will get established for sure um but i think what's important and i think one of the thing that corona uh, and the whole lo- post lockdown environment uh, covid did is forced a lot of companies to look at unit economics um and many of them contracted um uh, contracted or, or limited or reduced Uh, uh reduce the the area of presence or the geographic uh, area by shutting down or withdrawing from areas which were bleeding a lot of money uh, because the volumes didn't justify the fixed cost and if you didn't have fixed cost you had other costs etc so i think that is all evolving and i'm see- we are seeing numbers now pick up again so we are hopeful now and in- investor interest is back we're starting to see you know a larger number of deals getting done so i think the worst is behind us uh, we are very positive about how things will improve um, and for us the whole delivery model again i think india will come up with some sort of a delivery model that will work given the constraints both on the on the on the pricing point the margin point as well as the local on ground infrastructure constraints that are happening now whether that model will be similar to flex or different to flex i'm not sure that will evolve but i'm sure uh, you know enterprising uh, companies will figure out a way to be able to do that fulfillment uh, and do it without uh, you know at, at at a cost break even or a profitable way but that will take time uh, this has certainly been a fascinating discussion that i've had in, with you and also just like think about the opportunities within the mobility space now 
I wanted to ask you this question from the beginning. You know, you've been an entrepreneur, you've been on the operator side. What really attracted you to become a VC? What was the tipping point for you personally that you said, you know what, I want to be on the other side of the table and take a look at opportunities and put some money into it, go out, raise capital, and then start looking at this to be the career for me for the next 15, 20 years or so? Uh, you know, I, I've been an entrepreneur many times over. I've learned from more, more from my failures and success. Um, so I think one of the reasons was, of course, is that um, so last startup that I had, we exited that uh, to Mahindra's. Uh, I'd been an active angel investor um, and it was a passive form of investment. And I felt that entrepreneurship is very, very difficult everywhere in the world, but in India, it's even more challenging. And having spent eight, nine years, almost nine years running my own business and you know, my own startup in India, uh, I went through a lot of pain, understood the complexities about doing a, you know, an asset-heavy infrastructural uh, scale uh, project in India. And I realized that, okay, now I've gone through all that knowledge and learnings and understanding. Now I can either become an entrepreneur again um, or take that knowledge and understand it and create 20 successful entrepreneurs with, you know, in the same time frame. So I think the objective of being a VC for me was not so much, okay, let me deploy capital and generate returns. It is, India needs thousands of successful startups. Because uh, I feel that in the larger scheme of things, what sort of I realized was that startups were probably the only business model that will actually have the ability to generate employment, right? I wasn't sure that the government or public sector were going to do significant amount of uh, you know, hiring because of the very nature of public sectors. What I've realized was large companies, um, you know, listed entities were also looking at, uh, you know, process improvements, efficiencies, and actually looking to cut down on number of employees that they're going to have by improving that because of the scale that they've achieved. So I said, if you want to generate jobs in India, you're going to have to create successful startups like a Rapido or a Flipkart or a Oyo Rooms, et cetera. So I said, number one was that. Number two was, let's say if in the next 10 years, I could have either created another successful company for myself or created 40 successful you know, companies as a VC. And so for me, that is probably more satisfying. That I realized that would be more satisfying for me. So our objective was to do uh, to do that. Um, but then I realized that, okay, how, I'm a, a new kid on the block. Um, how do I ensure that I get best quality of, in, of, of founders coming to me for capital? Why would they not go to well-established brands like a Sequoia or a Lightspeed uh, or a Matrix? And I said, if I'm going to remain a sector agnostic firm, I will never be, um, in the top three consideration sets for you know for good entrepreneurs, right? If you ask any um, uh, you know entrepreneur that okay, you want to raise capital, who do you want to raise from? They'll typically you know give you these blue chip names. Um, so I said, how do I differentiate my myself or my brand from others? And what helps is I have a uh, have a background in marketing, um, etc. So I said, okay, for me to differentiate myself, I better be sector uh, focused. Um, 
and second is leverage my experience of running an automotive company for you know 10 years and having worked at ford motor company in the us as well for a short stint uh, but more importantly i have access to lps for my own ecosystem right so we had uh, you know through my previous business uh, and also we have access to um, oems auto component guys etc so all our till now all our lps have come from an auto background and therefore we think of advantage more as a platform rather than a fund and a platform that's uh, the gps and all the people in the fund itself now have about 5 years of experience on managing mobility investments in their portfolio um, and therefore we've sort of understood what has worked what has not worked you know what were the issues that a chalo faced or a rapido faced so all that learnings we've got internalized within our our team so we have i would say a team that's now got high level of experience or expertise in shared mobility backed by lps that come from you know two wheelers four wheelers auto component auto finance etc and therefore that ecosystem is also something we bring to the table and on the front end we've got you know five six of the most successful uh mobility companies or startups that we've invested in have become market leaders and therefore we have the ability to tap into them whether it's capital whether it's uh you know commercial reasons whether it's um mentoring for our and we have probably the best set of mentors advisors who come from you know successful uh, oems or uh shared mobility companies so that ecosystem works in our favor i think having a brand has helped us differentiate from that so today if i ask somebody who wants to start an ev company or a battery as a service company we ask them okay who do you want to raise capital from they'll still take the names of the four blue chip vcs but many times we'll be included in that consideration set of five vcs that they would like to raise capital from so i think for us to be able to achieve that in a short period of 5 years is a testament to the fact that being sector focused um has worked in our favor and hopefully we'll be able to continue to get gold deep flow and be able to identify opportunities ahead of other vcs so we are very proactive in our approach um akash uh, i think the difference is if you look at the traditional vc model it's in many ways it's reactive in the sense you know when a founder comes and submits their business plan comes and make a pitch then you do more of a selection process and say okay i've heard 10 pitches 20 pitches 100 pitches the numbers are not important when you end up selecting the best one or the best five or the best 10 and make investments in them and being sector agnostic you have the flexibility of going anywhere but your selection is in many ways you know um restricted to those from whom you've received that pitch are way is slightly different in the sense that we've spent 6 months in trying to say okay within mobility there are these four verticals electric shared uh, e-commerce logistics now within that there are sub categories of prioritization so we actually have made a list of 15 16 uh business models or opportunities where we would like to deploy capital and what we do is we do a bait and switch strategy where in the sense that we we get a lot of interesting founders coming to us and pitching ideas right 
many times we love the founders we don't like the business and many times we love the business we don't like the founders what we do is uh, if if we if if it's the former where we love the founders we don't like their idea we end up giving them one and it's in a similar space to an area that we're looking to invest in we give them that idea and we give them a terrible idea two ideas and says so look we love you guys we really think you guys have all the you know good team balanced team good experience whatever whatever but here are the reasons why we think the opportunity that you're working on may not work uh, and we explain to them that okay it may be an over it may be a, a space which is already overcrowded overcapitalized so we'll say look there are 10 other companies in this space um, and therefore we think that it's already you know it's a great idea but it's probably too late for now for, for you to be able to launch this for example you know there were 20 companies that started bike taxi companies like why would i fund the 21st or it could be okay we explain to them why we think this may not be a vc fundable idea we sh- you know many times they come to us and pitch an idea we think is a lifestyle business not a vc business or we say yeah the chances of you attracting capital from blue chip vcs is going to be low because we don't see a potential exit from this we don't see we explain to that they are welcome to listen to what we have to say or ignore us then that's fine uh, but then we tell them look if you still think that we can work together here are a couple of ideas that we are willing to fund um, and why don't you go back and think about it take a week take a month you want some capital we'd have we'll be happy to give you a small amount of capital for you to be able to validate that thesis uh so we give them two ideas never one um most of them will never come back which is fine because i've seen many founders are just married to their own ideas and that's okay in fact that also gives us uh good insights um into fact that this is not the right team to back anyways somebody who is not willing to Uh, is not open to other ideas many of them will come back and if they come back and say okay we are willing to do the bad idea then that's a red flag for us which means they've not done the proper diligence but right. that very rarely happens they will always come back to us and say oh we love this idea we think that this has all the things going for us it's a big opportunities we've not find we've not found any other company in this space we've spoken to so and so and so and so and we we also now see that this is a huge hair on fire problem and we we are very excited about this now tell us how do we proceed so we've done this twice and both times we've been extremely successful the good thing is they have to always come back and they have to always think that it was their decision to do this idea themselves i don't want them ever to come back and say that this was your idea you wanted us to do it and now it's not working what can i do and that's why we always give them two not one uh, so it's a more proactive way of identifying the right teams um and we then we capitalize them we don't ask for sweat equity we don't ask for you know we don't we don't believe in all that rubbish uh we'll still give them capital we'll take a you know double digit small double digit equity 80 90% of the startup will still be owned by the founders uh, we are not here to exploit them for god's sake even if we think we came up with the idea but ultimately ideas are worth zero it's all about execution um so we've done that we call that model mentor building 
and we think we can probably do a couple two or three of those in a year uh, but most of our uh, most of the capital will be deployed in a, a more traditional seed funding kind of uh, method where the founders come to us pitch an idea it fits into our thesis it's an area we're looking to invest in um, and we end up investing in them but uh, that's an interesting the mentor building pro- program we think is only possible if you're sector focused and you have the credibility and the experience to be able to provide that level of uh, you know value and detailing um, and we think now we have that capability we have that experience to do that so hence it's working um, and so that's the difference between a sector focus and sector agnostic fund and let's see it's worked so far hopefully it will continue to work i'd like to see how this actually evolves within the indian vc ecosystem because what you mentioned a couple of minutes ago where you spoke about the importance of sector focus funds and how you have the later stage funds coming in and then adding value that kind of ensures that the early stage companies then have an opportunity to go out and raise later stage funds from these investors as well therefore completing the entire chain all the way up until some sort of an exit either going public or getting acquired and at the same time there's this massive competition that's been that's been coming about in the last few years where you have the larger funds raising these um seed stage or pre seed stage um uh, uh firms which are then getting very competitive for the smaller players to to you know start investing in but the trend that's not happened is them being sector focused at the early stage they're still agnostic at the pre seed stage so there is still an opportunity for those smaller funds to go out play have a focus on the sector sector specific part what i'm really interested to see is will there be a sequoia of the world that will say we are now going to have seed stage smaller seed stage funds only in edtech only in mobility only in healthcare and and then then try and build on that and then see how it really and how the other co investors in the in the space then talk about it yeah it's it's everybody will come out and say yes it's great for the industry it gives us more co investing opportunities and then our portfolio companies to graduate but what a lot of vcs will not say is that it's also taking a bigger chunk of the percentage that they can hold the equity that they can hold in the startup itself So from that perspective I'm curious to know how that whole thing plays out and I don't know if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share on that part but that is something that Indian VC will see a big change in my opinion at least 2 or 3 years from now or it'll it, it's already started in a way if you think about it You're right I think uh growth funds are getting into you know seed early stage early stage funds are getting into seed seed they're becoming earlier and earlier and i think you know within uh, you know a short period of time whether you come in in the angel round or the seed round could be the difference whether you're exiting at 40x or 80x i mean and i've experienced this with one of our portfolio companies and it was just a i think five months difference between the angel and the seed round and the angel investor made 80x and the seed investor made 40x okay so just coming in five months later so i think people have started to see that I I think it's great. I think uh, Sequoia Surge, uh, you know, Fast Forward, all these early stage ones that are coming in. Um I think I'm very bullish about that. So I think it helps us for, to be sure because I don't think any large VC so if you got to deploy a billion dollars or 800 million or whatever, half anything above say 100 million, you got to be sector agnostic, right? Um because there is I don't think you have you can deploy half a billion dollars by being a sector focused fund in a country like India. i mean you could uh but you can't it's very difficult uh, so you'd be forced to make uh, uh, to deploy capital 
in maybe sub-optimum ideas if you're trying to deploy that large amount of capital. Uh, our funds are small. My first, you know, we, we are deploying smaller. We're a micro, micro VC. So for us, smallest capital, I think we can deploy it in a sector. Again, my definition of mobility is also very broad. It's not very, you know, just not shared mobility. The good thing is uh, all these guys who are running these early stage investments also have clearly recognized uh, advantages, ability to identify opportunities early on, and also have the ability to back the right founders for a specific ex uh, idea. Whether it's a category creator or a category aggregator, whether it's an offline execute, execution heavy model versus more a digital or a tech play. Uh, so these are things that we've learned. We've made mistakes. Um, but we've learned from those mistakes. Um, and the good thing is, like, if we go to, the, and we're happy to partner with them, right? If there's an early stage seed investment that we're doing and we feel that it's uh, that the capital requirement is more than we are able to satisfy from our fund, I happily, uh, you know, call up, uh, you know, my friends from these other VCs and tell them, I've got this deal, I'm putting money in. If you want, to, if you're interested to take a look at it, I'm happy to co-lead with you and stuff like that. Um, and if that the opportunities uh, for mobility, you know, today fortunately we have that credibility that those founders will get an audience from that fund because it's coming through us and because we are committing capital in that. Um, so that's one benefit that we get from being seemed as experts in a specific domain. Um, the other thing that we've seen is that many times that now I would say almost. 10, 15 to 20% um, of my deal flow is actually coming from all these VCs who are pitched a certain business from the mobility space. And it's either too early or too late or an area that they are doesn't fit into their fund thesis. And they typically end up referring those founders to us. So for example, if a mobility company is pitching to Pi Ventures, right, which is run by Mini Signal. Manish is just doing IoT, you know, AI, ML kind of investments. So if it is a mobility idea, doesn't have those other elements to it. Rather than him, put, you know, introducing them to a Sequoia Lightspeed, where he knows that they may not get an audience, he'll Manish will refer that to me and saying, hey, Kunal, this is mobility. Why don't you take a look? Or there are some cases where uh, Blue Chip BC has already made a, a, a decision to invest or is keen on investing. But we'll pick up the call, phone, call me and say, look, the round is closed, but I want your opinion on this startup because it's in the mobility space. Or 70% is committed, 30% is left. We really think that you, you coming on the cap table will add a lot of value because of your expertise, because of your LPs, because of this, because of that. Again, if, if a blue chip VC is doing 70% of the deal, would you want another blue chip VC to come on board or would you want, want a micro fund like us who have that sector experience and knowledge and understanding and you know all the relationships that are part of that ecosystem that we bring along. So I think because of all those reasons, I think this is definitely working to our advantage. And the best, uh, I think uh, last thing is that because in the middle of a pandemic, mobility is definitely not uh, a priority for most sector agnostic funds. Um, and could be a combination of, well, I, I can put money in edtech 
uh, you know, a, a social media or e-commerce, which clearly has got tailwinds. Why would I try to come into a mobility investment, which may take time to recover? Right. Or wait, my, my current three investments in mobility have really been badly affected because of COVID. I really don't think my IC is going to improve an investment in a category which right now is struggling or is, is facing challenges. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, that's another great opportunity for us, right? It's suddenly become a, a buyer's market, right? A year ago, I was looking to invest in, you know, an e-rickshaw, whatever, ride-sharing company. That guy had three term sheets and he was telling me, why should I take money from you? And I said, you know what? I cannot tell you. I agree with you. I cannot match those offers. It's too rich. I can't come in and that valuation doesn't justify. I can't justify that valuation. And I explained to him why. So I didn't do that deal. But today, that you know, the, all these founders are coming to us and saying that nobody's giving us the time of day. You tell me, you know, you tell me the terms in which you'd want to make the investment. Right. So it has definitely become a buyer's market. I think there is a little bit of negativity in this space. And that's that's actually working in our favor. Going back to what I said right at the beginning, I have a nine to 10 year investment horizon, right? 12 months of COVID here and there is not going to make a difference. The difference is okay. today, because of COVID, I would have invested in company X, right? But instead of coming in at a 5 million valuation, and putting a million for 20%. Today, I'm coming in at a 3 million valuation, whatever, 4 million, and I'm putting in less amount for more equity. Right. So, so when I'm exiting six years from now, I'll probably be making maybe, you know, a 60% IRR as opposed to if COVID would not have happened, I would have made 30% IRR. So actually, so it's, 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 COVID has actually been, uh, in some cases, has been a blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. I think there are pluses. There's, you know, it's a glass half full kind of scenario. It's fantastic. I mean, these are the kind of insights that I really wanted to get out of this episode, especially we've never done a mobility episode. This was great. Um, and I want to get into my last segment, which is a rapid fire. Just put you on the spot. Ask a sure. few questions about uh, you as an investor and your investor persona. I've often asked this question all throughout season one, and I want to also bring it back in season two and ask you, what is one thing that you wish would change within Indian VC from a personal perspective? I think uh, I only, I'll tell you, the, my biggest concern, um, and again, it's not a single VC. I think, I think there's a lot of capital in early stage and there's a lot of capital in late growth stage. I'm a little worried about with the, uh, with the whole China issue challenge that, where, you know, Chinese VCs have been told they're not welcome here. Um, I'm a little worried about series B, C, and D. Uh, I would say 70-80% of, you know, the 25 to 100 million type of checks were coming from Chinese VCs. So as a structural, um, I wish that we put in, you know, I personally, I understand the political reasons for, for you know, for what's happened. Um, and you know, I'm all for it, but I think that it is going to be challenging for a number of companies to be able to raise, you know, in the in those B's and C's rounds right now. So we're definitely scrambling. I still feel that you know the Indian local VCs have so much of knowledge, so much of depth and understanding of the space. Uh, we just still don't have uh, the ability to cut those large checks because most of them are in the micro VC side. And the second challenge uh, 
it's not so much on the VC side, but it's on the LP side. I, I don't think the you know this asset class is still well understood by a majority of Indian LPs. Um, there is they are just not committing sufficient capital in this category, and I think it's that the, you know the the quality of VCs are not so superior and so good. It was not there ten years ago. Right. I think um, people have started seeing exits. People have started seeing liquidity and and things like that and secondaries. Uh, but I think it's still a challenge to raise capital in in India. I mean, a VC in the US, will, you know, if they, if he gets in front of an LP. Uh, within one or two meetings, you know, they'll commit $5 million. In, in India, that's still not the case. It still takes an extremely long amount of time to convince domestic LPs to commit to this because this asset class is still perceived to be very opaque in its functioning and 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 justifiably so has not delivered till now. But I think, fortunately, I see that evolving very fast. That's great. Uh, I do agree, especially on the part where you mentioned the fact that a lot of VCs still need to understand. A lot of even LPs need to understand how the asset class really functions. It's still early days for Indian VC. Let's see how that again pans out in the next couple of years. My next question to you is with respect to you as an investor. You know, if you today were given unlimited capital, what is one sector within mobility that you know you would probably want to be investing in? It could be the latest stage deals as well. So what is one sector that you, you'd be you're extremely bullish on and would like to go ahead and, and invest in? Um, I, I, I would probably just expand into our current focus of EV. Um, and for two reasons, I think it's a ground floor opportunity. It's one of those once in a generational sort of, you know, uh, investment uh, opportunity to come in. Um, it's also a category that very few other investors understand. Mm-hmm. It's a very complex. Um, there's hardware, there's software, there's solutions. There's, um, I think that's definitely there. I, I'm just hoping I get the sense that this timing is right. Again, you know, our, our deployment window is three years, right? So it's not, it's, there's not a lot of leeway there. But I have a feeling that uh, the pandemic has definitely accelerated what was going to happen in the next 10 years in this in this in this category and this vertical to probably it'll get it'll happen in the next 5 years so the, i'm very very bullish about that and i continue to be so um i think there's terrific in, opportunities in this space all over the world i think one limiting factor is uh, that we're limiting ourselves to india but i think that you know even developing countries um are very early in their EV adoption as well. I mean, apart from Tesla, there's a very few successful companies out there. Um, but so I think that there is, uh, you know, there's going to be opportunities across the world to be able to deploy terrific amounts of capital. And I think that's been proven that this is definitely something that's a generational shift in the way we're used to, um, uh, you know, commuting will definitely change and become mainstream in the next few years. That's great. And, um, you know, if there's one significant change that you'd like to see within the founder ecosystem or the founder community, what would that be? Or in fact, the other way to put it across is what's the kind of advice that you'd like to give to the founders that helps them better understand the investing landscape within India? Or what what don't they understand about this, this, this industry? 
so I think investors, uh, sorry, uh, on to, so a couple of ways to answer that. Um, we love failed founders. I would say 50% of my portfolio consists of failed founders. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, I think uh, Indian entrepreneurs are very gritty, very, uh, you know, but I, a couple of things. One is I don't think many of them understand how VCs operate. They also don't understand that in many ways, VCs themselves are startups, right? Mm -hmm. Where we raise capital, just like a startup. And whereas a startup deploys capital to build a business model, we deploy capital to build multiple startups. And therefore, yeah. just like in a startup, some, some, some initiatives will succeed and some will fail in us also that's there. So we are also entrepreneurs similar to them. And they always think that we have, we are just financiers. Yeah. Um, and therefore they have limited understanding of how we operate. They're not able to comprehend that I have to return capital and therefore exits for me. I have to know where the exit doors are before I enter the building. And that's also something that investors, uh, sorry, entrepreneurs are saying, oh, I'm Indian entrepreneurs are, are very emotional, right? Mm -hmm. They are not able to, separate their emotions from their business decision. So that's one thing I think it's great to have high levels of emotional intelligence, uh, but it's very, very important also to be, uh, to not let emotions come in the way of decision-making. I think that's one thing about Indian entrepreneurs, which are very different to say a traditional American entrepreneur. And the second thing is uh, Indian entrepreneurs have this tendency of doing recency management. And I, in some ways I understand, they just don't understand big vision um, because they get stuck in this day-to-day -day grind of firefighting mm -hmm. because there's multiple fires coming up on a daily basis. Um, I think they're phenomenal at multitasking much more than others. Um, so I'll always compare the Indian ecosystem with the US because you know I've spent 12 years there and now I've been back in India for 10 years. So I have, you know, insights into both how the Bay Area works and how the ecosystem here works. And I'm sure things have evolved in America, but I make a trip there regularly. Uh, so Indian entrepreneurs are far more, seat, uh, you know, fly by the seat of their pants. They're, you know, always into recency management, fighting fires. They're always in a survival uh, kind of, a, you know, treadmill. Um, I think in the West, people are slightly more big picture, long term. You know, they're thinking ahead of time because they have the ability to look at bigger things, you know, because they've seen companies evolve and become so big. I think Indian startup ecosystem is getting there. You know, if I look at the whole startup ecosystem in India, they say 20 years old, right? Yeah. And in the first five years, we barely had two unicorns. In the next five years, we probably had, oh, in the first five years, zero unicorns. You know, the first three unicorns in India took almost 15 years to become unicorns, whether it's a Nokri, InfoEdge, or a Make My Trip. Um, it took it was a 15-year journey. Then the next 10, five unicorns took 10 years, eight to 10 years, etc. Now, if I look at the that the last five unicorns have probably become unicorns in less than three, four years. So we are seeing now companies are starting becoming big, and again. 
they become unicorns not because it's many of them become unicorns because they've raised 600 million dollar i mean raising 600 million and becoming a billion dollar company what's the point um you're overvalued um, yeah. but that's also changing pretty fast so i think confidence level is going up um i think entrepreneurs successful entrepreneurs now are coming back as investors angel investors are giving back to to the ecosystem i think that's important that will pick up um but there'll be failures there'll be successes and that's fine um i think fortunately we have two two hubs we have bangalore and we have delhi it's not just one silicon valley so i think both of them there's good competition between the two i don't know who i don't care who wins as long as both continue to grow and both continue to create successful companies that's what's important well that's fantastic uh, kunal this has been a wonderful episode you've shared some great insights and i've had a ball just learning more about the mobility sector and just understanding where you come from from an investor uh, and and sharing your insights from an investor perspective so this has been great for me personally and uh, Yeah, I'd look forward to some of your investments in the coming year. Twenty twenty one, I hope, is a bright and successful year for you as well. And hopefully, mm-hmm. we can co-invest together at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks a lot for having me. But I think this this has been a terrific conversation. I've enjoyed myself as well. And yes, please do uh, look me up when you're in Delhi next. I think absolutely is due. And if I'm in the Bay Area, I'll do that. But thanks a lot again for having me. So, That unfortunately brings us to the end of the episode everybody. I know we could have gone on and on and spoken to Kunal about the mobility ecosystem. I particularly enjoyed listening to him about the evolution of the mobility space and why it's become one of the hottest sectors right now in the country. I hope you enjoyed too. And if you did, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. It helps others discover the podcast and more importantly, you are notified every time we drop a new release. With that said, we are inching closer towards the 50 episode mark. So ensure you join us on our journey as we've got some really interesting guests lined up. Until next week, keep hustling everybody. See you on the other side.